I don't know if you've ever heard of Miriam Therese Winter. Her only claim to fame, as far as I know, is that she wrote this song. It goes a bit like this. I cannot come, I cannot come to the banquet, don't trouble me now. I've married a wife and I've bought me a cow. I've got fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Pray hold me excused, I cannot come. It goes on. Do you know it? It was a popular Christian kids song back in the day. It was written in 1965 uh, and it's been sung by campers and scouts and Sunday schoolers and girls brigaders down the years all since the time it was written. And it's fun, especially when you change the lyrics like we did as kids. Uh, I've bought me a wife and I've married a cow. Uh, hilarious fun for little boys and pretty fun for big boys too. Uh, but with or without the changes, it's such a light-hearted song. It's fun to sing, almost too light-hearted given what it's saying and the parable that Jesus told that it's based on. Because in reality, the parable that Jesus told about the great banquet, this wedding banquet, is a dire warning, a dire warning about the kingdom of God and how stupid we would be if we were to exchange the kingdom of God for the uh, fleeting froth and bubbles that this world has to offer, which cannot satisfy and will not last. And it's entirely appropriate for this Easter Sunday because Jesus is the only ticket into the feast and particularly what he did at Easter. His death on the cross is the ticket in. He paid for our admission uh, and he was paying for us to pay, join him for eternity and his glorious resurrection, which we're celebrating today, the fact that he's alive again, back from the grave, bodily, truly, really, even though he'd been truly killed, he was truly alive again, buried for a couple of days, but back to life. It's the signal that the feast of heaven has begun and it's the call to come to the party, to RSVP now. He's alive and well and he wants you at his feast, the party of the king who has destroyed death and who holds the keys to heaven. Lots of times Jesus talked about heaven as a wedding feast or as a feast which he would celebrate with his people uh, um, that he'd come to save. And he'd come to save them by paying for them to come and be forgiven and come with him. And he spoke about it, like this at the Last Supper. We're going to have communion at church this Easter day. If you're at home, maybe you'll have communion yourself there a little bit later as you remember Jesus' death and resurrection. But at the Last Supper, Mark tells us they were eating the Passover feast. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of vine until the day when I come, when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. They'll be feasting and partying in the kingdom of God. That's what he's promising. And now he's there, alive, resurrected in heaven, the risen king in his heavenly kingdom and here is the invitation for us to come. Now, the occasion that Jesus tells the story of the great banquet was a few weeks before his death. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was at another feast, in fact. It was the party at a home of a prominent 
community leader, a, a moral conservative from the religious right, a Pharisee. And this man has held a party to entertain his friends, impress his peers, show off his social prowess. How's he doing that? By having the man that everybody in Israel is talking about over to his place for dinner, Jesus. And if you were even remotely aware of the dealings between Jesus and the Pharisees in the Gospels at all, you should expect that things are going to explode because Jesus has been absolutely taking the Pharisees and the other Jewish moral religious conservatives on, warning them again and again about the judgment that's to come. In chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel, he's told them, Woe to you, Pharisees. Woe, that pronouncement of God's judgment. Woe to you, you religious hypocrites who show off your religion but neglect justice and the love of God. Woe to you who are full of greed, who seek your own glory. Or chapter 13. Yeah, you, he says, you are a fig tree that does not bear fruit and the owner is going to come and chop you down. And so repent, turn back, come to God in humility while there's still time. All of that is aimed at the Pharisees and their friends. And it goes on and on right through the Gospels. And so it's going to be interesting as Jesus accepts an invitation to the banquet of one of their leaders. And so chapter 14 and verse 1. One Sabbath, that's one Saturday, uh, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. No wonder they're watching him. What's he going to say next? That They've been looking for an excuse to catch him out. To the tiniest reason not to have to hear his words or listen to him and maybe even something that they'll be able to do something to get him in trouble. But Jesus is not going to put on airs and graces to protect himself. Not likely. And so verse 2, there in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him and sent him away. And he'd done that many times before. But he said to them, which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out even on the Sabbath day? What do they have to say for themselves? It's a bit of a trick question from Jesus. Verse 6 though, they had no answer. They had nothing to say. Silence. It's embarrassing and I take it by their silence that they know deep down that Jesus is right. You ladies who are watching this, you probably already know uh, about men, that men uh, will argue till they're blue in the face. But how do you know when a man's accepted that you're right? How do you know when he's finally agreed with you? How do you know that you've won the debate? Because he shuts up. He just stops talking. No apology, just silence. Because it's so obviously true what Jesus says. Just like everything that Jesus has spoken about them on all these different occasions. It's hard to hear. They don't want to hear it. And I guess there are times when we don't want to hear that we're wrong either. But Jesus won't let them and he won't let us off the hook and avoid the truth. Because he loves us. He loves us enough to warn us when we're being stupid and when we're heading for destruction. It's actually the merciful sternness of God that there are warnings in the Bible. In love, he warns us when we're facing disaster. The moment that someone stops telling you off for being stupid is the moment they've stopped caring for you. And so Jesus goes at them again and he starts with the guests who are at the dinner party there. 
Verse 7, he told a parable to those who invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. He says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't sit in the place of honour because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man and then in humiliation you'll proceed to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher. You'll then be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, he's not really giving tips on social graces and how to make it in the world. He's giving a basic principle of God's kingdom, that the humble will be exalted. And those who exalt themselves, who build themselves up and puff themselves up, want to make themselves look, they'll be humbled. And he's saying God is the one who's going to do the exalting and the humbling. And so this is huge. This is, this is totally the opposite of the world. The air we breathe, the message we hear, in the times in which we live and operate, say that it's all about you and you getting ahead, putting yourself out there, proving that you're the best, never taking second place. You just do you. Can you think of anyone who actually believes Jesus here, that he who humbles himself will be exalted? Nobody believes it. Nobody believes that he who exalts himself will be humbled. Canberra doesn't believe it and the politicians down there, uh, neither party, you're not picking on anyone in particular, sports people don't believe it, do they? Right? What footballer says after the match, well, you know what, I'm just a big lump of a guy, I'm pretty stupid and I, what I do is I chase a pigskin around for a living. You know, I'm not really good at much, I'm not really that important. None of them say that. Big business doesn't believe it. Imagine executive position available, available only to the especially humble and lowly of heart. No one to get the job. Do we believe it? This is basic kingdom truth underlying the whole gospel and the way of salvation. Peter, having heard this very conversation, will say to his friends in 1 Peter 5, verses 5 and 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. But Jesus goes one step further. He's had a go at the guests. Now he's going to go for the host who so kindly opened up his home to Jesus and all these lovely people. Because in fact, it wasn't kindness that made him open his house. It was something else. And so verse 12, he also said to the one who had invited him, When you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbours, because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And you think, well, who does that? Not me. I, I like it when my friends come over. I, I like impressing them. I, and deep down, I know it's because they'll look out for me if I look out for them. Uh, they'll invite me to their place if I invite them to mine and I'll feel ripped off if they don't do it. Who'd invite the poor, the crippled, the main people, the blind people who'll never do anything for you? 
the riffraff. I mean, they might damage something when they come over. I mean, and think what the neighbours are going to say. I don't look stupid to my friends who think, well, you invited them but not us. And who does that? God does. That's the point. God does. And Jesus is going to drive that point home with force in the story of the great banquet. A parable which at one and the same time is about the enormous generosity and love of God. But it's also about the sheer stubborn foolishness which leads many people to destruction. And it's so incisive. It, it's like a spiritual scalpel doing the operation on our hearts. And so verse 15. When one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Yeah, well, it would be great to be at the feast in the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, Jesus. I mean, what a lovely thing to say. Um, then Jesus told him, A man was having a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. You can imagine the scene at the house of this feast. The, the decorations are up. The tables are laden with all kinds of sumptuous food. The, the waiters are standing by with trays of champagne and the hors d'oeuvres or, you know, as we say down here in the southwest, the horse d'oeuvres. Uh, everything that's needed to make it a wonderful time, a memorable day, a fantastic occasion, a spectacular feast is on. It's not a private little do, it's abounding generosity. Lavish food in huge quantities to satisfy the hungriest guest. In fact, for a very large number of guests. And as the parable develops, it's clear that it's a picture of the kingdom of God. This is what heaven will be like, this feast that's sumptuous and abundant, lavish. A celebration, a banquet, satisfaction, enjoyment and love with the one who owns everything. It's Jesus' assurance that heaven is not boring, it's spectacular, it's good, it's a sumptuous feast full of love and light. He, he, in one sense, he's affirming the guy who's just said how blessed it would be to be there. You would be blessed to be there. And what's more, Jesus says, you know what? You are invited. But what happens when he makes this invitation to this wonderful banquet that's ready well, no one comes. No one. Every single guest makes excuses. That's what the master gets in return for putting on this most lavish feast ever. Lame, lame excuses. And think about what they say. There's the real estate excuse. The first one said, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Lame. Lame, since when do you buy a block of land and then it gets up and runs away? It's, it's going to be there the next day, not going anywhere, and no one in the right mind would buy a piece of real estate without seeing it. It's polite, please excuse me, but it's phony, it's empty, it's shallow. Then there's the cow excuse. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, Ooh, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. Five yoke, that's five pairs of oxes, that's ten oxen, ten tons of beef still walking. And and you don't know whether they can pull a plough yet? Come on, really? But he was polite. Please excuse me. 
And then there's the marriage excuse. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. Really? That's lame. Flimsy, half-baked, just like all the reasons. And what are all these excuses tied up with? They're tied up with property. They're tied up with possessions. They're tied up with relationships, which pretty much covers everything you could use an excuse for not following Jesus, isn't it? Property, possessions, relationships. Which one of those have you ever used to avoid God in the past? Which one might you still be using now? They're just excuses because deep down none of them are the real reason that none of them are coming to the party. The real reason is they just don't want to come. The excuses would have evaporated if they'd really wanted to go. If the invitation was to uh, 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 box seats at Taylor Swift in New York at Madison Square Gardens, or, or you know, if the invitation was uh, all expenses paid, flight to the World Cup final in Qatar in 22. Uh, flights by front row seats or, or if the ex- invitation was to a week of shopping at someone else's expense in Paris, whichever one of those you fancy, do you think anyone would say no? All of a sudden, they'd find someone to mind the oxen or to watch the real estate that's just sitting there or that you'd find someone to go and, and keep your wife company while you're off doing the trip. And what Jesus is doing is warning us just how much our hearts are taken in by this world, by the things, by the people, by the places, the entertainment, the here and now. We're so easily distracted and we've got every excuse in the world not to listen to God, not to come to him, not to accept his gracious offer, not to enjoy the heaven that he's prepared for his own. In fact, that's the real guts of the problem that we've all got with God than really the problem that he's got with us. Do you like your house and garden more than you like God? It's a simple question. Are you more interested in your car or the car that you want more than God? Would you, who would you rather be happy with you? Would you? Who would you rather spend time with, your wife, your husband, your friends, or the one who made it all, the one who will call you to account? It's searching stuff, isn't it? Why is it that when Jesus Christ offers peace, forgiveness, eternal life, an eternal feast, and and proves it by coming out of the grave, why is it when it offers all that that people don't respond? They don't respond because they don't want it. Not interested. It just shows you how cactus their minds are that they're thinking skewed, that they're not thinking about spiritual things or eternal things. They're not thinking about how wonderful this offer is or how dreadful the consequences might be. They don't think clearly about it because they don't want God. Instead, they want the froth and bubbles of here and now, which are not going to satisfy and they're not going to last. And I wonder if you've got a sneaking suspicion that Jesus happens to be talking to you and about you, that Jesus has got you in his sights when he says this. And the horrible tragedy of the religious leaders that Jesus is talking to is that they acted as if they wanted the kingdom, 
But it was all just show. They wanted the kudos. They wanted to impress people. They wanted to show everyone that they're part of the establishment, that they're in the in crowd, to impress others that they had religion all shown up. But that's what they wanted. And Jesus sees straight through them. He sees straight through all our hearts. You can't, you can't fool Jesus. And though they probably already felt the temperature rising, knowing that Jesus was having a go, they would have absolutely choked when they came to the next bit, when Jesus came to the next bit. Verse 21. So the servant came back and reported these things to the master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, we'll go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind and the lame. And here's the, here's the amazing generosity of God. He's inviting everyone, anyone. His invitation, yes, it's to the nice, the middle class, the church-going Pharisees, but it's also extended to the scum of the world, to the outcasts, to those not part of the in crowd. The, the beggar on the street corner with the cardboard box saying, you know, give me your loose change. The drunk living under the, on the streets under the harbour bridge totally disconnected from family, disconnected from sight, even disconnected from himself, you know, mentally unstable and ragged and stinky. The odd kid at school who no one hangs out with. Anyone, everyone. The rich man in Jesus' story, he wants his place filled. His generosity is overflowing. Heaven is for anyone, no matter how tired, how guilty, how disastrous their life, how pathetic, how worn, how spiritually bankrupt they've been until now. He opens it up to all and they flood in. This wretched crowd flow into the banquet and there are still empty seats. So verse 22, Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told the servant, we'll go out to the highways and the hedges and make, make them come in so that my house may be filled. He's not saying go out and point a gun at people so they become Christians. He's not setting up the Spanish Inquisition. What he's saying is this is so urgent, the party's on. Go and get them, compel them, persuade them, show them how awesome God's... Bring them in. There's so much joy and promise and hope in what Jesus is saying. Come and feast with the king in his heaven. Joy, unending satisfaction. The question that Jesus asks us is, Do you want the eternal feast? Do you want what Jesus is offering? Do you want to be right with God and do you want to enjoy him forever? Do you want it? The invitation's there. It's yours if you want it. Jesus has paid for you to come by his death on the cross. That's what he was doing when he died. He was paying for you to come in, paying the consequences of your sin so that you don't have to. He gave us a life as a sacrifice for you so that you could be forgiven. And he's risen bodily from the grave, truly, physically, really. And so the party's on. It's guaranteed. If you haven't already RSVP'd, it's time to do it. You're more than welcome to come back to God. He's inviting you in no matter what's happened in your life or where you've been or how you've treated him. The past, the present, the guilt, the stain, it can all be dealt with by his blood. That's why we have a four-day-long weekend every year to celebrate at Easter with chocolate and hot cross buns because it's time to party because God's generosity, he's opened the door and he's giving life. 
That's why we have hat parades to celebrate God's wonderful kindness and generosity in welcoming people like us into his home who don't deserve him. But beware, for verse 24 is the crunch at the end of the story. So Jesus says, for I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Beware, he's saying to the prominent Pharisee whose house this is. Beware, he's saying to the guests who are all jockeying for position and trying to impress everyone else there in the room. Beware, he's saying to anyone who will make excuses and refuse his generous offer. Beware if you want to muck around and pretend with Jesus. Beware you who love this world and hate God and put it before God. Beware because deep down it's all just an excuse and if that's the case then we're not welcome. Wouldn't it be desperately horrible to be standing in your death, you front up to the gates of heaven and you're looking through the glass windows into this feast that's inside the banquet and seeing the joy and the, the blessing of the party inside but knowing that you are no longer welcome. You are locked out. Desperately horrible knowing you could have been there. Seeing your wife inside, seeing your husband in there, seeing your son or your daughter, seeing your friend or your mum and dad, seeing your neighbour who's in there, who, who'd accepted the invitation. But, but you were locked outside. Desperately awful. Desperately sad. Seeing those who sorted things out with Jesus. Those who'd put their trust in him. Seeing those who'd exchanged their excuses for the truth. Who'd exchanged the fleeting froth and bubbles of this life for the glorious, wonderful reality of heaven. Having been paid for to come by Jesus. Have you accepted the invitation? It's, it's still open. Are you coming to the feast? Jesus is alive. He's defeated death. You don't want to miss this party. Make sure you don't. Make sure that you've RSVP'd, that you're coming, that you've said to Jesus, I want in and I want all your offering. Please have me back. Happy Easter, everyone. Father, these are sobering words. They're full of joy and hope, but also of consequences and judgment. Father, please help us to see what you're offering, how wonderful it is, and to come to your party. Thank you that the invitation's open and that no matter what's in our past or what's in our lives presently, that that will stop us from being invited. Thank you that Jesus has paid for our sins and we pray, please, that you would have us back, that you would welcome us in, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.